Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. You know, it was great catching up with the episode again, seeing it and reading it. Um, you know, I, I immediately, the minute I laid eyes on it, remembered why, you know, it was such a favorite for me. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode one, The Brothers Silverberg. Hi, it's Lauren. Hey, it's Jesse. And welcome to season two. Season two, we made it. We did, and now it's time to put on our hats mm. because the show is not on DVD past season one. It is not streaming, so we got to put on our hats and be archaeologists. Yes, we are searching. We are the Indiana Janes. Ooh, I like that. Mm. You nice. can be Indiana, I'll be Jones. Sweet. Perfect. So we'll be taking two different syndication cuts and putting them together to try to rediscover all the cut scenes from syndication. Yes, try to get the, the full scope of the of the episode as it originally aired and not what we've seen as a, as a cut piece. Some yeah. people don't realize maybe that in syndication there are cuts for time mm-hmm. and you don't see the, the full episode that was aired because they add timing and all that kind of stuff was different. Yeah, luckily the TV Land edits, which most people are watching, mm-hmm. only cut uh, sections mm-hmm. as opposed to individual lines. Yep. When we talk about do. that in this episode. Yeah. So as we go mm-hmm. along, we'll point that out to you guys. Yes. So the title of this episode, we're pretty sure, is a takeoff of the novel The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And a lot of sitcoms, a lot of plays, movies take this up. The Sisters Rosenzweig, mm-hmm. that is one of my favorite plays I I've mentioned, that, that Barnett Kelman, our guest and director of the episode, actually directed a radio show version of that. Oh, yeah. Surprise, everybody. Um, we're not just recapping this, the two of us, like mm-hmm. normal. We have a special guest today. Yeah, our third chair is Barnett Kelman. The guy who directed it. <laughs> and we're so excited to have you join us for this. So the episode was written by Diane English, a great way to kick off season two, get right back into the the original vision of Murphy Brown. It aired on September 18th, 1989. But it was not the first episode to be filmed that season. No. We'll talk more about that on the next episode. And understandably, it was directed by Barnett Kelman. We just keep saying his name over and over again. Over and again. Barnett Kelman. Barnett Kelman. And the music at the beginning is The Boy from New York City, although originally it was He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Oh, the Chiffons. Yeah. So The Boy from New York City is, was recorded by the Adlibs. I love this name. It's so good. The Adlibs. The Adlibs. Yes. Unfortunately, they were a one-hit wonder, but they are from Bayonne, New Jersey. Oh. So that's a nice little tidbit yes. that connects to Hold the show. Hold them in your heart, Jersey. And it is a Lieber and Stoller song, which I don't think we've had one of their songs. We haven't. Yeah. That's a first. And they were obviously huge songwriters in this decade. It came out December 1964. It was number eight on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. And the song was on the Blue Cat label. Meow. So shall we get into the episode? Yes. Barnett, welcome to the show. Uh, Oh. Yes, sorry. I'm officially welcoming you to the recording. My pleasure to be. Good to be back. Yes. So... We are opening into the first episode of season two, and we have the lovely Miles Silverberg as our first subject. He is bopping in. He's in a suit. And this is what makes me so happy. So, Barnett, I don't know how much you um, have heard of our podcast so far, but I haven't been... um, the kindest to Miles in the first season. I was was a little disappointed um, in Miles because he hadn't yet developed into the Miles that I know and love from later seasons. And we talked a lot about kind of Grant's adjustment into Miles when Miles really seemed to sing and and find that that true 
Silverberg quality and when he'd seemed to kind of backtrack a little bit in development. And this moment was so important to me because I was like, this is Miles. Miles is here. Miles is ready. Let's do this. And it was so exciting to see from the get-go. Yeah, we talk a lot about the transition of Miles from season one to season two. Uh, Barnett, maybe you'd like to speak a bit about that. Yeah, I think that that may be one of the big reasons why I'm so fond of this episode, so proud of this episode, and feel like, in a way, it was a culmination, without us ever talking about it, we never said this, but in a way, it represented a culmination of of a, of a, of a love and of a work that both Diane and I, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of invested a lot in. Well, you know, Diane... Diane was always in love with Miles because she created him to be based on Joel Shikovsky, her husband. So she was always had a very loving, humorous, you know, mockingly, but lovingly mocking view of Miles. She really is crazy, was crazy about the character. But on the other hand, and of course, he had a lot of heavy lifting because he had to be the he had to be the nemesis. He had to be Murphy's nightmare. Um, having such a young whippersnapper, wet behind the ears, boss who, quote unquote, didn't deserve to be there. Um, and so he had to be the butt of a lot of jokes. And so I think you see that in the first season. Now, I love Miles because I, I got what Diane was doing. I personally identified with him. And, and, you know, I love the fact that this very central uh, young, smart Jewish character, you know, uh, an attractive one as well um, on the show that wasn't common in those days, that wasn't common at all. And, and, and named as such, by the way, and stated, and there were going to be jokes about it. And so I was very into that, that process. And I think, as I said, the last time I was on, I had a lot to do with working with Grant to help him kind of make that transition and fi- find the connections to Miles and the glasses and a lot of the bits that that became really staples um, were things that Grant and I worked on together. When I watched Brother Silverberg, first of all, the minute I saw the script, I saw that Diane had kicked off the second season by being able to claim a lot for Miles and Murphy's relationship, saying we've been through so much. We now have a professional relationship. There's respect there. And now we're going to have this. um, Now we're taking it to that next level where you're kind of, are we friends? Are we not friends? Can I take you? Can I introduce you to my family thing that happens, but doesn't happen on day one. That's a big progression and one that obviously Miles aspires and what and Grant were able to do because of how far the relationship had come was that they had this great byplay where they're just really hitting it. They're just hitting the like old friends, old time combatants and lovers and teasers, people that tease each other. Um, they just had have it from the beginning of that that uh, uh, that episode. They're just crisp as hell, and so it feels like a culmination of that whole relationship. And by the way, it was pretty. It's pretty exceptional um, episode in that very little of it takes place 
at, in the bullpen, and none of it takes place at FYI. This is one of our biggest episodes at the town ta- that's really mainly centered at the townhouse and is personal for Murphy that doesn't involve a parent, another friend, another girlfriend, or Eldon. You know, this is miles in the townhouse. And they say something about sitcoms. They say that you know that your character is either growing or sort of failing, withering on the vine, depending on how many sets you, you're allowed to play in. You know, that the more sets a character can go to, the bigger that character is in, in the repertoire of the show. You know, that's why it was important in season one to somehow get Eldon to the office, you know. Miles takes it, you know, to the townhouse big time in this episode. Anyway, I was just saying I think it's a very, very economical cold opening um, that he plays perfectly and everybody plays their part. Everybody takes a great shot at him. And I love the way he sort of wanders in and gets hit one side, then he gets hit on another side. Then he's surrounded by those two guys. And then Murphy comes in and and delivers the final blow. I mean, I just kind of love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, we open on Miles, and Miles is making his way into the bullpen, and he is looking very dapper in this lovely suit that we see him in, and oops, he has a tag on. Um, <laughs> I really, what, one of the things I really like that shows, like, the quality of it is that it's one of the the tags that's put on with a pin, like a safety pin, uh, rather than a, a plastic rippable style, which says something just prop-wise about like the level of fanciness that Miles has put himself in. Uh, so as he walks in, he seems very proud of himself. He's like he's like a kid on the first day of school. He's got his new suit, his new outfit. He can't wait to show his classmates, you know, his coworkers, you know, how how well he looks and his new stuff. It's it's not just about impressing Josh. It's also ooh ooh impressing the people that he works with as well because he's very excited about the suit. Yes, and it's that moment of you even if you hadn't watched season one, this walk in that he does, you know who this guy is. And you know that the kid that he's kind of doing a grown up impression of there's a and it's that moment of you're so proud of your back to school outfit. And then Miles has that classic moment of the thing that you thought was really cool and remaking yourself immediately becomes a joke. So we he meets up with Corky, who's in a nice teal blouse. She's got this silver black pattern vest looking great as Corky does. And the second she sees him, she very empathetically asks if it was someone close to him. Which really throws off Miles' groove. Like, Miles' groove is already t- going down. And what I what I love about what Corky does in this moment is that she's she's so caring and then laughs in Miles' face. <laughs> and I, it's such a great introduction to season two because I feel like the gang's really finding their dynamics in a, in a solid way. And that, that relationship between Corky and Miles, I enjoy so much. And we're already seeing the ribbing and the fact that this this woman who maybe would have actually treated him like a boss is already making fun of him like the rest of them. Oh, and then when you know they they come in, he he sort of sprouts up like a puppy. Like, look, look, look what I got. Look, look. He is. Miles informs everyone very proudly that he got himself a Brooks Brothers, which is top of the line. And he's you know he it's kind of his Miles 1980s version of like treat yourself. And he's going to show his brother that he's doing pretty well for himself, which as a as a youngest child, I definitely understand that need to like show my siblings that I'm doing really well, 
even though I know they can see right through me. So Corky laughs at him, walks away, and Frank just kind of throws away this line of, oh, so you bought that suit, dot, dot, dot. And then Jim, our, our resident suit man, comes over to support the young buck. And this is jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the best parts about this joke about Miles' suit is that later Josh has the suit when we meet Josh. Right. The suit of the day. I mean, Armani was so much of that moment. It was all about Armani at that moment in time in, in fashion in America. So Josh was doing the right thing. Of course, Jim, Jim is talking in terms of kind of Savile Row, like this World War, you know, almost World War II. He's obviously not World War II generation, but, but that kind of foreign correspondent who bought his suits in England, you know. Bespoke, bespoke suits, the silk lining. It's just great. Every character has its own, their, you know, their own particular uh, way of humiliating Miles. Jim's <laughs> uh, is actually, he's, he's trying to help him. He's trying to give him, lob him something that's supportive. So is it a silk lining? No. Hand stitch lapel? I don't think so. <laughs> Double seam. And eventually he has to just walk away with a, looks nice. <laughs> and that's sweet, classy Jim. And just trying to do the right thing. <laughs> Uh, so Murphy Brown arrives, season two Murphy Brown in a brown suit. She's got, it's it's that lovely, we've talked about this, that, that great earth tone that she wears with the gold pops of jewelry and scarf. And her, it kind of brings out the gold in her hair. Yeah, I love what Murphy's wearing. You know, yeah, the I whole, love it. The whole episode is very much sort of this, this sea of browns and olives. Like, mm-hmm. that's rare in an episode, right? To have just sort of these neutral colors, but it looks so great. You know, we have the new season two hair, and it's, it's really nice. It also makes her look a little more youthful. Yeah, I love it. I, I love that her hair has more texture already. We're getting more into that uh, that hairdo that we see for a while. A lot of these setups for for taking down Miles all start with what seemed to be maybe supportive and another one with Murphy saying that she's impressed. She's impressed that someone 25 years old can still fit into his bar mitzvah suit. And it's a it's a great it's a great season setup of kind of recapping these people in that by dropping his age in that kind of comment, it it resets the the dynamics for you without again, one of the things I love about the show is without exposition dump. Yeah, I really, I really love the bar mitzvah joke, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really sort of a setup that they still have this sort of playful relationship. You know, uh, they're not necessarily adversaries all the time like they have been at the beginning. Yes. And Murphy heads to her office and we see the first secretary of season two. I have labeled the beer bro. Um, as Murphy walks by, he drinks out of a can of something question mark smashes it burps and Murphy doesn't even try to engage and she just keeps going so it's interesting because Jesse yeah you you called it you know call him a beer bro mm-hmm. right and it says in the script that it's a soda and that really threw me me too the script says it's a soda but obviously we don't we don't address that question in on stage because we don't show you the can. And so we definitely we're playing it like it's a beer and the and eat the burp, even though you could burp after a soda. I mean, actually, that's a crew member. That is one of the Dolly. Friends. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I, oh, that's cool. You know that. Uh-uh. Yeah, no, he, he was uh, he's one of the guys and he was this gigantic scary 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 looking guy who of course was very sweet and very quiet and beloved to us and we were doing that all the time as we were grabbing people um 
because, you know, they don't like to hire um, short players, players with short bits, more than for a day or two days. Um, so they don't give them to you at the beginning of the week. Um, it's a different pay scale. So the script will say there's this person there and um, you don't have them at the beginning of the week. So we would grab the prop guy. Larry Dolan did a lot of this. Uh, we would grab whoever was on stage and put them uh, put them into a run through so we could see the bid. And we we grabbed uh, this crew member who's I'm sad to say uh, name escapes me. And he passed away sometime during the run of the show. Uh, he was a lovely guy, but we grabbed him and put him in, and then we decided it would never get funnier than that. So we just worked with what he had, the natural quality he exuded. So we find ourselves in ourself, just one me, just one us. Uh, <laughs> so we find ourselves in Murphy's office, and we see the dartboard is back with mm-hmm. the with the, the letters NRA, which for most people listening today would probably assume the National Rifle Association. Um, However, at the same time, that time period, it could also be misconstrued as the National Relief Act. Um, so there was a really interesting Washington Post article that came out about the premieres of and, and the returns of sitcoms of this week. And it actually only lists two shows as doing well. And one was Murphy Brown and the other was the famous Teddy Z. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No kidding. That was the hot that was the hot pilot. Yeah. And then, of course, the famous Teddy Z ended up crossing over with Murphy Brown later in season two. And I had completely forgot existed. Sorry, Teddy. Uh, but there's, uh, there's a very interesting moment when they talk about uh, the Murphy episode. And I was surprised to see that a publication had already picked up on the dartboard. And they bring up the NRA from this episode. And they say, although the old trademark of the National Relief Act is used, Diane English had confirmed that the real target was the National Rifle Association. Ah, ah, I forgot that because I do notice it's kind of a generic logo. But I don't remember what the National Relief Act was, but I think we were spoofing the NRA, uh, the National Rifle Association. Diane is quoted as saying that yeah. the, the people here at Warner Brothers were concerned that if we took the real NRA logo, we'd get in more trouble than we will anyway. I mean, we are... Definitely aware timeline-wise that uh, something personal had had occurred that would definitely um, inspire Diane to roast the NRA. Now, in the the Murphy Brown book that we always talk about, it mentions that after this, you guys got some threats. Do you remember that at all, Barnett? No, I if if the if threats came in, I didn't see them. Uh, that's that's how brave I am. I just walked through the bullets there. I didn't. I never looked back. No, I don't. I didn't know anything. About, I don't know anything about any threats. So yes, we are in the office. We have seen the dartboard. Uh, Murphy makes her way in, and of course, Miles is right behind her to ask her a favor. And uh, wait, uh, she hits him with the door. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> you bet she. Of course, she hits him with the door. She has to hit him with the door. Yes. Well, she must hit him with the door because we are, as you do with the introductory episode, we are reestablishing these relationships. We are back in business. This is Murphy and Miles, as we love and know them. And Miles says he's asking her a favor, to which Murphy responds, Miles, they're sold over the counter these days. You don't need to ask the pharmacist. I love that joke so much. <laughs> Again, we're just, we're setting up the, like, the treatment of him as an adolescent. <laughs> exactly. Condoms were not, as it were, out of the closet. 
It wasn't like something that you gave, you know, your kids when they went to middle school or that they handed out in health classes at all. It was still a, you know, a very much a, um, a quiet hush hush thing. And, and, and they kept them in the back, not in the back, but under the counter or, you know, the, in only reach of the pharmacist. And you'd have to ask for it. And it was tremendously embarrassing. Yes, exactly. Well, and I, I appreciate I appreciate making a condom joke on primetime television. It's nice to see Murphy Brown again for the win. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the bringing the condoms out into primetime television meant, yeah, make that's a sophisticated. Just the fact that we were talking about a condom made it an adult show, made it a nine o'clock show. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Miles's request is that he he wants her to meet his brother. You know, someone who is famous and respectful may have anecdotes about their first year working together on a major network. To which Murphy responds, can I just stay here and pound my thumb with a hammer? I do love her uh, delivery on that. Diana has, I think it's Diana, always had a great repertoire of of awful alternatives to suggest rather than do something she didn't want to do. Uh, you know, one, one that I still say to this day is in one episode, I don't remember what episode, she, uh, she has, uh, Murphy said, I'll just stay home and rearrange my sock drawer. <laughs> you know, I'd rather do that, in other words. And this is, this is in that family of Diane joke. She is holding nothing back in this first episode. We are right back to, like, true Blue Murphy. And... However, because we have the true blue miles in, in attendance, he has leverage. And that is the Admiral Poindexter interview. Right, right. It's the hot interview. It's one everyone wants. Uh, now, if people currently may have foggy memories about Poindexter or have not heard of Admiral Poindexter. Uh, so he was convicted in April of 1990. This episode took place in September of 1989, a good seven months prior to his actual conviction. Here's what he was convicted for. So in April, on April 7th of 1990, Admiral Poindexter was convicted of five counts of lying to Congress and obstructing congressional committees investigations into the Iran-Contra affair. Um, they were investigating the Reagan administration, their covert arms sales to Iran, and the diversion of proceeds to insurgents fighting to overthrow uh, the Senate. I'm going to say this wrong, the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Uh, So anyway, so at this time, when this episode came out, this was super hot topic. The idea that you might get to interview Admiral Poindexter in the wake of these indictments was a really big deal. It's exactly the deal that Murphy would want. That's all great, great stuff. And it has a P in it. And P's are funny. (laughs) Poindexter's a funny name, regardless. So even if you aren't up on your history you can laugh at that line so miles is doing good he's being a real good producer right now good strategist (laughs) to get Uh, to do what he wants exactly he knows what the audience needs (laughs) to get what he needs so of course murphy cannot resist this temptation so she says one of her famous this is where i draw the line lines she says no more meals with family members no more tea with your sister or brunch with your cousin from dubuque and i'm not calling you mr silverberg and Miles does the best. One Mr. Silverberg wouldn't kill you. Exactly. He knows what the audience needs to get what he needs. So, of course, Murphy cannot resist this temptation. So she says one of her famous, this is where I draw the line 
lines. She says, no more meals with family members, no more tea with your sister or brunch with your cousin from Dubuque, and I'm not calling you Mr. Silverberg. <laughs> and Miles says the best, one Mr. Silverberg wouldn't kill you. I love that when he leaves and he says that, because then she, she does this great smile, which again yeah. is reflective of their new relationship, and it's like, yes. I like you, you know. Right, it's, like it's incorrigible. Yeah, but, but only as he's closing the door, you know, she's you yes. know, not going to say it. To his, well, to this his is face. something that we've talked about, about how this episode, it's called The Brother Silverberg, but it's not really about The Brother Silverberg. No, it's, it's, it's about Murphy and Miles. Exactly. Yeah. And it's their relationship and how that manifests with the very delicious John Tenney <laughs> as Josh. I, I do have a, I was very excited to get to this episode. I very much enjoy John Tenney on my television or film screen. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, he's your type because you, you like Jake. I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> he's very much in that, in the Jake Yeah, Jake, Jake is great. They're both buddies of mine. Uh, John, I saw, saw John not too long ago. He doesn't look much different. <laughs> he's aging very well. If you see, if you, if you see the recent, uh, um, uh, film of the seagull that just came out this year uh, with with uh, Annette Benning and Shusha Ronan and uh, J- John Tenney is in that and he does a wonderful job and he's still John Tenney he's still hunky and he's still smart he was perfect casting for this well he is very he's very hunky he I the second I saw him on the screen the first thing I I thought was he's the hot dad from Lassie ah I'm not familiar with that one there you go. I was too young to find him as the as the hot dad, but I can't help myself. It's what they do to me. It's a good hair. It's the J with the good hair. That's my type. I mean, in skipping ahead a little bit, because we're talking about the fact that 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 Josh is exactly Murphy's type, is it really made me laugh because in the script, when they first meet, it says there's a beat, an immediate chemistry here. But that shouldn't be a surprise knowing Murphy's pension for tall, dark Jewish guys. <laughs> That's what, that's what, that's what giant, that's what Diane wrote. That's exactly what, yeah. It's a good hair. It's the J with the good hair. That's my type. Yeah, Murphy's type are uh, tall, uh, dark uh, Jewish men whose names start with letter J. There you go. Same as, same as if you, you know, since we're doing, we're doing a deep dive into Diane's brain, same as Joel Shikoski. The only difference is Joel is short. And Joel has great hair. Joel has great hair. Hi, Joel. Haven't seen you in years. Hope you're well. Hi, Joel. You're hunky. So we're in Phil's. And for those who are aware or maybe not aware, but syndication cuts so they can fit in more commercials. And the sad is that we lose lines and sections because of time. Phil's entire arc is cut. Yeah. This scene does not start with Miles seeing his brother. It starts with Miles coming in and talking to Phil at the bar. And through the entire scene, really, I was going to say episode, but this scene, Phil is sort of blown away that he didn't know that Miles had a brother. Phil's issue is that he's Phil. He knows everything. And so this is, this is not good. Maybe he's slipping. Uh, and uh, we have a little bit from the script here. Now, I don't do a, a good impression of Phil. Hi there, Murphy. Well, you should see. You should do. You should just do this because I I'm not going to be able to do this. So you should do it. Uh, here we go. Wait a minute. You've got a brother. Why don't I know that? Not that I'm expected to know everything. It's hard enough keeping track of who's in, who's out. Those new Dan Quayle limericks. Ding. I'm 66 years old, Miles. 
the pressure's starting to get to me. And uh, eventually, uh, uh, Phil uh, thinks that maybe he should let go of Harry Truman's hat size. Yeah, it's uh, it's sad. It's sad. Uh, you know, uh, I, I full disclosure. I mean, we would always fight to keep stuff like that and make sure that in, in, in this day and age, you would never get that beat in on day one. It would it would never have been filmed uh, because there's so much pressure. We we had more time. We had more story time. And, and, and aside from anything else, that's called servicing your characters. In other words, that's keeping Phil alive and reminding the audience what's, you know, what are, what are Phil's qualities and keeping him alive for the next time when you really need him. Um, and so Diane's doing a great job of servicing Phil, but it's also, quote unquote, the downbeat on the scene before the story part gets going. So it is cuttable. And that's how it got cut in syndication. If you, you guys have had the, ability to read the script um, uh, and there's no question that the full palette you know the full scope of Diane's story is richer you know it's a shame that these things have to be cut yeah it was really interesting reading the script because there's this whole scene between Murphy and Frank and then Jim and Miles that didn't even make it to air well remind me though that remind me though the section where the section where um for where where Miles goes to get advice from Frank. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that follows the scene we're talking about, where Miles goes to get advice from Frank and then from Jim about what to do about this. That didn't make it to syndication, but that, I assume, made it to air. I, I mean, that felt like we shot that. You're saying we never shot that? Oh, no, yeah, you definitely you definitely filmed that. That I know. Uh, so if the audience is not aware of what Barnett is alluding to, is that in the script, thank you, Corby, uh, which we have, there is a whole section after this scene uh, when Murphy agrees to go out with Josh. She has sort of a, you know, conversation powwow, you know, what should I do with Frank? Well, Miles has a, a similar conversation about the whole thing with Jim. And my understanding was it was cut for time, but I'm pretty sure Barnett, from everything that I know, not that I was there. Um, that you guys did film this. And also in the Murphy Brown book, see, it's funny because uh, we always knew we would have an inside track on this episode because the Murphy Brown book we always talk about really goes into depth to this particular episode. Um, but it said at the table read that you guys actually talked about making it an hour episode because it did run long. Do you, Barnett, do you remember that discussion or conversation or how that went? Yeah, that starts to ring a bell. That starts to ring a bell. It does sort of feel like that. It feels like we worked hard to compress it. Yeah. Well, it's a very tight episode. It's a very, it's a very tight episode. So in a way, at the end of the day, I think it's fine. But yes, I, 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 because I, you know something, I was wondering. I know it seems like a very little thing, but when when I watch these things, I can't help noticing, with pleasure, sometimes things that. Oh, that looks like just what I would do. And then sometimes with dismay going, why did I do that? That doesn't look like me. And, and, and I noticed, for example, the beginning of the Sardellas scene starts right at the table. And in the script, it says they're entering. And I sort of remember setting that whole thing up on the entrance. We must have cut in right at the table just literally to shave the time of that entrance. 
In other words, we compressed the dialogue. We, we, we kept the dialogue, but we didn't, we did it in a much more curt way, I think, in the final episode, but that saves, saves maybe 10 seconds walking in or 20 seconds. Yeah, it's just so sad. You know, nowadays you, you take that extra footage and put it online as like a bonus. And, uh, and now it's lost to time. Yep. Yeah. So Phil wanders off. And what's interesting is that when Josh comes in, this is what it says about him in the stage directions. He's about 27, tall, good looking, wearing an incredible navy blue Armani suit. In a nutshell, he's a GQ version of Miles, smoother, more mature than his years. So something that you know we mentioned earlier was Miles saying that he got the Brooks Brothers suit to treat himself. And this comes back quite sharply because Josh is wearing that Armani suit and he refers to it as treating himself to this thing. And as as a younger sibling, this hit me really hard because there's this whole element of you, you're trying so hard to look as good as or what you feel is as good as what you consider your older, more accomplished sibling. And of course, this is all perception based, you know, their relationship, they both see from their perspective, probably not actually their honest dynamic. Uh, and you can see how Miles, he's so proud of the suit that he got. He's so proud that he did this and he's showing his brother. And then his brother comes in with the very thing that's just out of Miles's reach and just like one up some. And you can just see it kind of just like the knife goes in and twists a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know how, I don't know how successful or how well Brooks Brothers, you know, is managing these days to kind of rebrand themselves, but they seem to have managed to become a lot hipper now than they were then. But at that time, you know, they were classic, but as safe and as boring as you could get. And that's what that's the way Miles went. Sociologically, for Miles coming from where he came from, presumably, we think presumably, um, possibly first, you went to Harvard, probably possibly the first in his family to go to college, but certainly the first in his family to go to an Ivy League school. Brooks Brothers was having arrived for miles. That's a real sociological correct note. So uh, Josh and Miles have this big sort of macho hello, you know, sort of this male bonding, you know, bro stuff. Um, we find out that Miles' nickname is Scooter. It's so cute. You know, he I love... Oh, I was just going to say, I love that it's Scooter and that his other wish was to be Scoop. Like, oh, it's just Miles got, Miles together. has a Scoo Scoo thing. <laughs> you know, when they have, you know, a discussion about the, the suit, we, we find out that it's Armani, as we talked about, you know, that's a really mm -hmm. big deal. Um, and we're really setting up their relationship. This sort mm -hmm. of, you know, he's always a couple of, like we said, like a couple of steps ahead. Um, uh, but but Josh is, you know, he's not a, a crappy brother. He, you know, he's famous brother. He refers to Miles, you know, like there's really a love there. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think that they're competing on purpose, which I think is lovely. There's a really sweet posturing that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, even the way Miles, you know, it's like my town, my burg, my beat. Like there's this certain like bravado that they're both kind of putting on but not in a not in a toxically masculine yeah way. yeah it's, it's very sweet it reminds me of when i was like on the paddle boat with my nephews once and they both were like arguing with each other about who was a better runner to impress me and it but it wasn't to take each other down as much as just trying to feel like they're a valid part of the conversation mm -hmm. yeah the, the love is still there and it's really it's really endearing to watch and you know 
there's also sort of a subconscious natural, you know, competition. You, you want to impress yeah. the people that you love. Exactly. So it's not really competition, I guess, but just be like, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty well for myself. Particularly yeah. if Miles has always felt in the shadow of his brother. And you can tell, and this is a little spoiler for in later when Josh is talking to Miles about how he feels about him, but they're clearly the person that each other wants to be impressed yeah. by. Like, they, clearly, Josh wants Miles to be proud of him, and Miles wants Josh to be proud of him. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really fun. Yeah, well, the yeah the the thing we get right away is that for Josh it's kind of effortlessly smooth, and for Miles he's just got to sweat for everything. You know, Miles is always schwitzing. He would not be funny if he wasn't schwitzing, and working and working that out. Grant in this episode, one of the pleasures for me watching it is seeing that way more than you know than at the very beginning. Grant really had learned how to schwitz. He had learned how to sweat it out. He he had mastered his own version of his tantrums and of his his sulks and all this kind of stuff. And uh, uh, it makes it gives me great pleasure to watch his performance in this episode. He's so wonderful in this episode. Well, and I th- I think that was key for me watching the growth of Miles over the first season was that by the time we get to this point, I find myself no longer. I guess the best word I can think of is annoyed by his antics because they really do seem to come from a grounded real place within miles. Whereas before I think I was seeing that growth into schwitzing before it was tantrums and kind of whiny voice as he was trying to find it. And while there are plenty of moments of heart tugging, this is the moment where I go, okay, this is what they were looking for. This is the place where they found it. And it's just charming. That's exactly that's but that is exactly how I feel. I mean, when we last talked, I was we were still talking, you know, a lot about we were talking about the end of the first season. But when I would when I watch the pilot, you know, and I'm I'm very grateful for the fact that it was received so well and that there was so much good stuff in there that people could see in all the characters and in all the work that was going on and, and certainly in the writing. Um all the potential of the series, but but I see a lot of effort in all this regard. The fast talking, I see it done with effort. You know, I see the attempt to reach for that that front page style, but not necessarily really being on top of it. And then in this episode, their behavior, Murphy, you know, Candace and Miles and everybody just seems to be doing this effortlessly. They're thinking they're they're, they're in the moment at the same time as they're rattling off these jokes. It just doesn't seem like jokes to me. It just seems who they are. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so they make their way over to the table and Miles you know, wa- wants to take his brother out and he's going to get them dates. And Miles is very excited. He got them a reservation at Sardella's. Ooh. See, I love Sardella's. I love the idea of Sardella's. I I love anything where something is specific to a world. And this is part of the Murphy Brown world. And it it just sort of gives me a warm feeling. It's funny because I have this odd recollection of a little bit of disappointment because um, we had a wonderful, uh, you know, well-known, deeply accomplished um, um, production designer, Roy Christopher. And he had created these fabulous sets, which I was lucky enough to be able to stage on all the time. And he was always you know, surprising us. And, but we had these really big 
standing sets. I mean, Murphy's Murphy's townhouse for the amount of time we're in it is is a huge set. And then we have the FYI set and we have the bullpen. So these and then Phil's. So all these sets that are up all the time took up a lot of stage space. And, and we didn't have that much room for, for the, what they call the swing set, you know, the, the guest set of the week. And so that after that big buildup, I kind of wanted Sardella's to be more punchy than it was. It seemed like a quiet Italian, you know, you know, sort of bistro rather than the hottest place in Washington at the moment. So I was personally a little disappointed when I walked onto that set just because we didn't have, you know, it was nicely appointed, but we didn't have the room to give it scale and give it scope. Oh, no, it, did, it, it didn't seem odd to me at all. I just figured that the place was narrow and, and they were sort of in the back. It, it warms my heart to know that viewers are, gen- are more generous than I am. Yeah, same. I got the impression that, especially because, you know, it's Murphy Brown, like she probably doesn't see, sit with the, the normal people <laughs> at the front of the restaurant. They're in the back room. I wasn't taken out of it at all. Made a reservation for Quattro. I feel like, to me, I think that Miles is like channeling Antonio Banderas of the 80s. Oh, maybe. And 90s. I think he's trying to do like that. That was definitely a like very sexy time to be a Spanish-speaking man. Well, uh, Miles is going to get Josh a date, hence the Quattro. Mm. Uh, you know, but Josh doesn't seem super like into it, you know, but Miles feels that he needs to help his bro out because apparently he always helped him get dates to every single dance known to child kind yes and uh, i love how miles just sort of deflates as he you know tells each individual dance prom school school event it's really sort of beautiful and then we find out that the two of them have the same taste in women which is a little weird amy turlow amy turlow amy Amy turlow yes (laughs) they both like the same girl because they're always very mean, close in age, as we keep being reminded. Mm-hmm. Murphy later is, you know, how you're older, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, Phil calls Miles away for a phone call, which gives a great opportunity for Murphy to enter. What I love is that in the stage directions, you know, uh, she comes in and asks where Miles' brother is. It says in the script that it's like a death sentence for Murphy. <laughs> She's very begrudgingly coming in. Um, and when she sees Josh, she can't believe it. She goes, whoa, mix up at the hospital. Which is such a great line. It's a great line. It's a great line. Uh, I, I love the delivery. I, I love you really get the shock. But also, you know, she's, uh, she's into this guy. Uh, so Phil is still stuck on not knowing that Miles had a brother. He just sort of, you know, wanders off again. And then Murphy approaches Josh, you know, excuse me, I'm following a hot lead. Rumor has it you're a Silverberg. Yeah, it's the it's the first time we see that Murphy has game. You know, I yeah, well, with Jake, you know, we saw her have this kind of sexually charged relationship with somebody, but their relationship and their their dynamic was already established. This is the first time that we see her at the moment of attraction going in fresh. And it, w- it was really cool to see that, that swagger. I, I know we've already done, you know, Jake and all that kind of stuff. But I, 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 I think this was, this was, Candy, I think was most comfortable flirting with Tenny than anybody else. <laughs> That's my opinion. Uh, I also really love that she's famous. He's not. So when, you know, she says who she is, you know, he goes, I know. And she's like, right. And just the way that Candace says right is obviously Mm -hmm. from experience because all of her life people have known who she is. 
But yeah. it, th- there's so much behind that. And I don't know if it's, okay, yeah, this is the dynamic, but she's also sort of enamored with him. And, and there's lots of layers to me in that right that I really, really love. It is. You can see there's this slight, almost disappointment in her. Like that I can see, I see this moment of her wanting to approach this fresh and having someone be like, yeah, oh, I know yeah. who you are. Is a little like, okay. <laughs> I got a lot to live up to maybe. Exactly. Or like, do you think of me as an older, older woman? Mm, that's true, right? Oh, hey, you're right. He knows how old she is if he knows yes, who he she does. is. Yes, he does. And if that's something that she might be sensitive to as far as an age gap. Ooh, so many layers. So layered. Uh, Murphy says that it was her idea to have lunch. She's so darn fond of Miles. (laughs) I love that she starts speaking like Jim. So darn fond. So darn fond of Miles. I was like, where did Murphy go? (laughs) When she found out he had a brother in town, she just had to meet him. You're an older brother, right? (laughs) A year and eight months. That would make you... 27. 27. And then in the stage directions, it says, shit. <laughs> I love that that's in the stage direction. Several times. Um, it is also on her face. Yes. Great reading of the line there, Candace. Yes. Yeah, this whole relationship, seeing it now being Murphy's age, is so much different for me. There you uh, go. You know, and, and knowing people who are 27 and having been a teen or a tween when I watched this, uh, it's so much more visceral to me. Like, I get it on a different level, particularly all those times when Murphy hits the arm. She goes, 27, huh? And it just, I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, I get this. And it's so oh, interesting. It, yeah, same. Like, the, the idea of 27 means such a different thing to me now and the idea of if I if I was working with a 27 year old right now even at my age I would feel a little cradle robbery and seeing them as younger but it it doesn't feel like that he's a very mature 27 yeah and it doesn't feel creepy it feels very natural no no it doesn't feel creepy I don't think their relationship feels creepy at all It, it feels exactly the way you want it to which is you know they've got so much in common. They look so great together. Why not? You know, but but they are going to have different references and it is going to be something for her to deal with. Yeah. Well, and what I this is, again, jumping ahead a little bit, but there's a line later that Murphy says about I don't want this to change our relationship. Which is that's a huge moment in the in story of Murphy Brown where she because she obviously falls for for Josh and and so for her to give priority to her relationship to Miles who we started a year ago with the guy she was stuck with when Arvin didn't come back you know that that's that's the whole story that's the whole story is that she cares more about Miles than this you know than this fling so that's a big deal yeah yeah um so he's working on a very specific environment case and at first Murphy thinks that he's working for the the bad chemical company, Teltec. Mm-hmm. But he's repping the family um, that had a toxic waste dumped in their yard. And uh, he knows it doesn't make him rich, but it helps him sleep at night. Um, yep. And he, he starts to get a little distracted, you know, by her. And uh, uh, Murphy uh, says that she has an underground source, you know, but Josh already knows the underground source. I was really thrown... I was really taken aback because the way that she says hazardous waste <laughs> is so sexually charged. Like, I'm not used to those words being so sexy. And to use, you know, modern terminology, they clearly want to bang. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, did you get 
Did you catch the name of the scientist um, who's... Husband? Yes, yes, Corby told us. Dr. Bruce Janicek is Corby Scientist's husband, who was, in fact, a scientist. And for some reason, you know, since we were all such show business types on set, we found it, you know, very special that she had a scientist for her husband. I think they should be a sitcom. Yes. Uh, so then Miles shows up, and he's so excited that Murphy and Josh have met. I love this line. <laughs> the two most important people in my life. Ooh, so oh, so telling. Oh, and he asks what they think of each other, and they both think they're pretty great. They're pretty happy. <laughs> they're very happy. They're just looking at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, Miles doesn't uh, doesn't quite get it yet, because uh, I think he doesn't want to get it. No, no, you know, it, 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 the, the, these people are, are not people who should be attracted to each other. So why why would you see that? Exactly. Uh, Miles calls him the firstborn, you know, several, again, many references, as, as we've mentioned, to the fact that he's older, but not by that much. Um, you know, uh, Miles wants to impress Josh that this is close personal, re- you know, he's a close personal relationship with Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes through this whole monologue. And in fact, and in fact, Barnett, I wanted to ask you, because we have the script now. Thank you, Corby. And in the script, it has the whole sort of monologue that, that Miles is trying to impress Josh with, but Josh is just staring at Murphy. He's not really paying attention. And, and how the relationship sort of built. And, you know, I, uh, it took a lot of time. You know, I'd say around the time of the Ollie North trial, we really broke through the barrier. He's trying to be mm-hmm. very impressive. And he says, I had to make a very tough decision about, and it says dot, dot, dot. And then he notices that Josh is staring. But... Uh, the line is, he says, a tough decision about her conduct. Now, as actors, many times if, you know, the pause is not happening yet or the rest of the action or, or you want to fill it, you will add lines sometimes. So I, I just sort of wondered if that was Grant remembering this from season one, because this has to be a reference to the fact that he has suspended her because of her conduct um, or something that sort of they remembered as part of the, you know, canon and brought it up. Um, I know it was a long time ago and it's a small thing, but I don't know. Barnett, if you remember that. No idea. No idea. I figured. Uh, so, uh, so Josh apologizes, but he, you know, he's a big fan. He really respects her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and Murphy does that lowering her head and goes, oh, get out of here. You know, like she's, you know, and then giggles like a teenager. So demure. Oh, it's beautiful. And then <laughs> Miles is confused, so he calls her on it. And and Murphy denies giggling. She didn't giggle. I'm not giggling, she says. I don't giggle. <laughs> so uh, Murphy changes the subject after she scolded Miles, you know, um, that, you know, how, how could he not tell her that Josh is an environmental lawyer? You know, it's the most important issue of the decade. And then the two of them kind of lean into each other. And it's like Miles isn't even there. Josh offers his, you know, time to sit with her. But Miles doesn't think that Murphy has the time. But Murphy says that she can make time. Uh, yeah, Josh she says, well, can. They, uh, right. Uh, and Josh says, well, you know, they have reservations at Sardella's, you know, does she want to join? And she would love to, if it's okay with you, Miles. <laughs> and then Miles gets it and has a tiny freak out in the Miles way, but trying to hold it in and not faking it very well. And, and he says, it, he's, he's okay, you know, he, he's fine. Um, it's not like it's going to be a double date. Um, no one's really dating here. And Miles' words is that he loves it. But he does not love it uh, because he notices how Murphy and Josh are now staring at each other. Yeah. Yeah. He's in denial. Uh, he is in big denial. <laughs> 
So we'll see you in two weeks for the second part of this episode of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 